reading is from Exodus chapter 16. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. And the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? for they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day 
which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out together, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the tenth part of an ephah. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Abby. Uh, you never know when she's going to read. Usually it's the long passages where I'm trying to keep you safe from hearing my voice for too long. So my sermon doesn't start till now. It's a trick. See, I didn't get counted against the five minutes. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful passage uh, that Abby just read us. We just read in your word. Father, we've heard it before, maybe not in detail, but I pray this morning we would see freshly what it means that you are the bread of heaven, Jesus, and that you give us the rest we need. In your name we pray. Amen. Israel has come through the Red Sea, and they are venturing on a 40-year journey into the desert. In the desert, the wilderness is barren. And it's going to be a time of testing and a time of trial. And it's, for us, I think it's a reality we need to be aware of in our own lives. That we live in the desert currently. Theologians like to use the term, the already and the not yet. We know that Jesus has come, and he's gone back to be with his Father, and he will return again. And so we, in many ways, we are living in the new kingdom, and we have the first fruits of the Spirit. But we also recognize as we look around, as we think about even the events of last week or events in our own personal lives and in our hearts, we are living in a desert. And as we look at this passage, it's important we do recognize specifically what's going on in the story, but also, as we see in the New Testament looking back, what in this story can we relate to? What does it reveal about ourselves? How do we respond to this desert in our lives that we are a part of? Um, I'm, I'm afraid that the Bible is one of those, for some of you, it's beautiful. The fact that there is this desert, you, you like hearing that because you see it in your life. And you recognize it's real, that things are broken. But for others of us, it may seem pessimistic. And it may just, you may get tired of that concept. And I hope this morning what we will see is, unfortunately, there is a desert. But the beauty is that God uses that desert to rescue us, to bring us closer to himself. So we will see that as we look through this passage. We're going to start by looking at, they're going to look at two main broad points. There is a problem, and there is a provision. Okay? So let's start with the problem. The problem of the desert. If you, the very first verse of 16, they set out from 
Elim. What is Elim? Well, chapter 5, verse 27, we didn't talk about it last week, says, Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. That sounds awesome. It's an oasis. It's beautiful. And what does God do? There's this oasis. Everything's going great. He says, okay, you ready to grow? Come with me. And he leads them into the desert, and they complain. And I want to be clear, it is a problem. I mean, there is a desert, and they go out, and they see the fact that they have no ready-made food source. There's no, there's no crops, right? Uh, they have livestock, but the livestock have nothing to eat, and they are nervous. And I don't want to minimize that, but we're gonna, we are going to talk about grumbling. But before we do, I just want you to know, there are different types of deserts, and I recognize that. There are some of us who go, are going through tremendous hardship. And in many ways, all of us will at some point, right? And then there are some people who seem to have zero hardship. Man, they just, they're living the dream. But if they're honest, even in their own heart, is deep hardship. So let's all just understand the desert exists in different ways for all of us. But what I want to focus on in this first point is their response to the desert. They grumbled. How many of you are grumblers? Okay, I actually got some hands that went up. That's amazing. The ones whose hands didn't go up, they should have. We are all grumblers. We all grumble. What is this grumbling? Listen to what it says. In the whole congregation, not some of them, not a few, not the wicked ones, but they all grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And I want to draw our attention to what the grumbling looks like for them. The first thing is um, it was extreme, like, exaggeration. I don't know if any of you watched the uh, the comedy, The Last Comic Standing. There was one comic that just made us laugh a couple seasons ago, and he did an imitation of a junior high girl, junior high girls, no offense, where he said, you you know, it's the same scream whether they see a dead body or a telephone's missing. Like, ah! Same, same, telephone's missing, dead body, same reaction. That's the Israelites. They see that there's no food, and they overreact. Okay, what's the evidence? Well, first of all, verse 3 says, And the people of Israel said, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. And that's a little extreme, right? I mean, how hungry are they? They just left Elim. Okay, not granted. You missed one meal in America, we get pretty upset. But if you, we're not going to cover it this week, but next week in chapter 17, it's a short passage, by the way, in the water from the rock, they get thirsty. And in verse 3 of uh, next week's passage, it says, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock? Wait a minute, they have livestock. So, they're not starving. I mean, granted, they don't want to have to kill their livestock. I get that. They want to let it grow, you know, have babies and multiply, but they're not starving. So they're, they're talking excessively. But there's a second problem in their groaning, and that is it creates this interesting memory of the past. Still in verse 3, when we sat by the meat pots, they were thinking back to Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. That's an interesting uh, memory they're having of Egypt, isn't it? Now, it's possible that they're just saying we smelled the meat, like we didn't actually get to eat it because we were the slaves. But more than likely, they've created this memory of Egypt that was, we had food, we had meat, and we had all the bread we wanted. And uh, this is what grumbling does. Because grumbling, ultimately, as we're going to see in a second, 
is not a grumbling against the situation, but it's a grumbling against the Lord. They really were questioning God. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, but first, I, want to, I, I remember in seminary we had a professor in marriage and family counseling tell us, because I, I haven't done at that point lots of marriage counseling, and I haven't yet found this situation, but I'm sure maybe I will someday, where you have a couple and they're having problems in their marriage. I'm trying to be very uplifting right now. And what the marriage counselor, what this professor said was, there's this weird phenomenon where he'll, they'll say, counselors will say, well, tell me about your love for each other. And when couples are struggling, they'll say things like, you know what, we've never been in love. And they'll just kind of say this, like, you know, I, don't, I think we just got married, and they'll kind of create this almost false memory. Well, you know, we had to get married, we were friends, everything worked out, blah, blah, blah. And they'll sort of have this false view of their past. And so counselors have recognized this, and so to tease it out of them, they kind of say, well, tell me how you met. And they try to get them to think back to like that first moment, you know, uh, or maybe the first moment where they knew they were in love. And share the story, and, and by the time they start talking, the hope is, in counseling, that a spark will trigger. Because the reality is our hearts can convince our brains to change the memory. And grumbling does this, because grumbling, as we see in our passage, is ultimately, if you look at verse... Eight, it's a grumbling against him, the Lord. What we are doing is we are saying, I don't trust you. I don't believe you have my provisions or my best um, in mind. And where do we, what does that remind us of? Is the garden. right? Adam and Eve are in the garden. They have everything they need. There's just one little problem. They've been told they're not supposed to eat of the fruit. And I just remember, I didn't set a timer. So this may go on for hours. Sorry. That's always fun. Interrupt your sermon with a timer. Adam and Eve are in the garden. And presumably everything is going well, but the serpent shows up to convince them that everything is not going well. Because there's this one fruit God will not let you eat of. And he convinced them that God did not love them, that God did not have their best in mind, and that they need to take matters in their own hands. And that is the essence of grumbling. So are you a grumbler? What does it look like to be a grumbler? What, are, how are you, what areas of your life are you dissatisfied with? Maybe you say it out loud. Maybe you're telling people all the time. Maybe they, you can't stop talking about this area. Or maybe you're holding it inside. Maybe it's a dream that hasn't happened. It's a, a job that's not going like you think, a future. Maybe it's a, a marriage like we talked about that isn't going well or one that hasn't begun. We are grumblers by nature. And it's our way as, as individuals, of, rather than trusting that the Lord has our best in mind, of trying to control the situation and hold on to it because we don't believe we can rest in Him. We're actively trying to take it from Him when we're grumbling. Are you doing this? Are you changing your memory? Are you, are you now interpreting your story differently because of your dissatisfaction? And of course the answer is yes, and we'll talk more about this later practically, but begin even now to think, what area am I doing that in? Because you all, we all do it, right? What are the areas I'm just dissatisfied with? And are you, do you connect that dissatisfaction with an actual questioning of God's goodness? Okay, that's the problem. But God provides. Point number two. I'm only one minute and 48 seconds into this sermon, so we've got plenty of time. God provides in the desert. It's really interesting, his provision. Um, when you read chapter 16, 
what stands out the most is that he doesn't light into them. Like after the grumbling, seven different times we're told they did this. He doesn't, he doesn't light into them. He just says, I heard your grumbling and I'm going to provide. And you know what he provides? Meat and bread. Does that ring a bell? Verse 3, oh, when we were in Egypt, which was like the worst experience of all time, you're a slave in Egypt, we had meat and bread, and it was a total lie, a made-up memory. But what does God do in his redemption, in his providence? He says, I'm going to provide you meat and bread, and he does. The meat is in the form of quail. Now, this is, for the, to catch these quail, one of the scholars said that you know, the quail, after they fly all day long, by evening time, they're very tired, they're very slow, maybe easier to catch. So I did, but the problem, the, the miracle is you've got hundreds of thousands of people that need quail. So you have just evening of quail where they go out and gather the meat, prepare the food, and they have their meat. And then the other provision was manna, which literally translated is, what is it or what it, or something like that. You can ask Thomas later. He's trying to hide from me. But what is it is the actual meaning of the word manna. And what's significant there is it's really hard to know. We, we know at the end of the passage, it sounds like they, he, they describe it as wafers made of honey. So maybe we have a, an imagination, but even then, to them it was completely shocking, a, a complete miracle, something they have never seen that came right out of heaven for them. Right? But what's in verse 4 of Exodus 16, listen to what God says. Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. So you really have two provisions. You have the actual food, which is a huge provision, but God's also testing them, are you going to follow me? What, what is this relationship going to look like? See, when he brings them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and into the desert, this 40-year time period, it's God training them to live as sons and daughters of him, right? That's the point. And that's the area we're in, right? We're in the already in the not yet, and we're being trained and tested. We live in a world that has brokenness. Our own heart has brokenness, and we need this testing. Now, I love this, this word, the use of the word law has such a negative connotation, and I want to make sure we don't get hung up on that. I'm going to remind you of a quote I've used a few times. Um, from Frederick Buechner when he says, the Bible is not, first of all, a book of moral truth. I would call it instead a book of truth about the way life is. Those strange old scriptures present life as having been ordered in a certain way, with certain laws as inextricably built into it as the law of gravity is built into the physical universe. So when Jesus says that whoever would save his life will lose it, Whoever loses his life will save it. Surely, Jesus is not making a statement about, morally speaking, how life ought to be, only. Rather, he is making a statement about how life actually is. Did you all lose? Did that just go, what was he talking about? Here's what Beekner is saying. When we hear God say, here's the law. When you go out and collect your manna, collect enough for one day. He's not trying to be mean. He's saying, that's what's going to happen. I'm trying to protect you from the fact that if you collect more than one day's amount, it's going to rot. It's going to stink. It's going to make the entire community infected with this stench. There's a warning there. Also, even deeper, it's going to reveal you don't trust me. And so the first sin pattern we're going to look at is hoarding. 
Grumbling was before the food came. Now the food is here and they become hoarders. They want to collect it. They want to keep it. When God says, I want you to go out every single day and gather it freshly. Why would he do that? Well, we know in the New Testament, of course, Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. There's something about the daily connection to the Father. Going in and every morning repenting, and now talking spiritually here, and, and receiving freshly the news of the Gospel, applied to your life freshly. Whereas our temptation is to do it week to week, month to month, maybe that one time ten years ago. We want to have that experience and avoid Jesus in the mean, all the rest of the time. And I'm wondering if you recognize that. Do you see your, your own acts of righteousness, the things you do to be good, as actually attempting to avoid Jesus? It is hard to go out every morning and gather manna. It seems so simple, but it's hard. And why is it hard? Because it requires that you trust that it will be there. And we hate to trust anybody, even the Father. So when we were in seminary, uh, we had a, our first and only experience with a hoarder. Now, if anyone here is a hoarder, I apologize. We can talk later. We'll work through it. But this person had a real issue, and I didn't know what it was, and it was before the television show ever existed. But um, one day, outside of our house where we lived, there was just trash everywhere. And what we found out was the seminary was buying the properties, which we knew, and they were going to allow a few of the non-seminary students that live in the properties to keep their place. But because they'd never inspected it, they needed to go look at it one time to make sure it was worthy of purchasing. And there was, the letter went out to the folks that weren't seminary students. And this lady gets the letter and decides, I'm moving. So she moves with, to her sisters in Florida with her handbags. She's out. And what they find in this apartment is, one, you can't get the door open. Right? So they go through the windows. And the trash just comes, I mean, I'm probably exaggerating, but it really did come barreling out. They had to climb in through the windows, and it was like waist high throughout the entire apartment and into the basement. And the water was shut off. And why was the water shut off? Because at some point it went bad, and they didn't want to call. She didn't want to call anybody to come in and see the apartment to fix it. So she was showering, apparently, at her office, like at her work, because she was a nurse. So really bad hoarding. And I, and I remember just at the time going, what in the world would draw us to cling to any trash or anything so firmly? And I would like to now invite the hoarders in the group to come up and explain to the rest of us. Um, I think we all can relate on some level. We, you know, we eat a candy bar, you throw the trash away. But for somebody, that wrapper was important. It represented something that meant something at some point. We took the artifact, the thing that you had as sort of a pr provision, and we turn it into the thing. So the manna is simply a representation that God is providing. But the temptation was to collect it because certainly this was going to be the life-saving thing. This was going to be what saved me. This is what's going to help me. I don't need Jesus. I've got my manna overnight. And it rots. What do you do? What do you cling to to avoid Jesus? We all do it. We all grumble and we also hoard. Dreams, fantasies, goals, money, right? What are you hoarding? What are you clinging to? It can be even righteous things, things that you are proud of, things that I would never want to disparage of, but that you look to instead of Jesus for your righteousness. What are you clinging to to avoid him? 
And it's important to note that when you do this, and we do, it's also detrimental to the community. Moses knew when the people were hoarding their manna, right? He knew because the next morning it stunk. And everybody realized, okay, we're never doing that again, right? Um, And it was like, you know, did you see what Bob did? There's no Bob in in this congregation, so I can keep using that uh, as my go-to. You know, he collected all that manna and it just stunk and it just, every, the whole area, the whole region got to just worms and, and decay. That's what sin does. When you are sinning, it's not just you. When you're loving something other than Jesus, it's not just your own heart you're defiling, but it's ruining the community for you. But there's a second sin pattern, this is getting really encouraging, uh, that he brings up. And I'm going to use the term hurry sickness. I get that from a book that I would recommend to everybody. It was written not not recently, but called Adrenaline and Stress. And this author is talking about hurry sickness. We are a people who love to live and are addicted to adrenaline. And what's the second law? The first law was only collect enough manna for the day. The second law was collect enough manna on the sixth day for the seventh. Right? Hey, we get to do that. We're great at collecting extra manna. So they did that. But there were some people, for whatever reason, who on the Sabbath day went out to collect extra manna. And God responds. He says, um, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Why would anybody who is told rest? Not want to rest. I'm really asking. Okay, that's enough of this kind of joke. Why do you, why do I resist rest? It's the most baffling, broken commandment in the whole Bible. You would think, I mean, ask any teenager, hey, you get to sit down and do nothing, right? The teenager is going to be like, that is awesome. That's what I'm built for. But somehow, the rest of us are like, wait a minute. So if I do nothing, who's taking care of me? If I do nothing, who's providing? If I do nothing, where's my significance going to come from? Where's my edge? Where's my you know, resources? How am I going to be above and beyond, go above and beyond? And so we do. We do, we do hurry. And we do stress. And we do work on the Sabbath. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that on Sundays, which is the Sabbath in our Christian era, you should not work. But you might give it a shot. You really ought to take a break. You ought to rest. Right? And if it can't be Sunday for you because of your occupation, and there are those that have those jobs, there's police officers, and there's firefighters, and there's, there's others that have these jobs where they have to work on Sunday. Take a rest on another day, right? And worship. And, um, but, but not just the Sabbath rest. Are you resting in Jesus? Are you trusting in Him? Is it, are you resting in God? In Deuteronomy... 8, verse 3, Moses tells us this. He says, And he humbled you and let your hunger, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Have you all heard that before? Jesus, in the desert, says the exact same thing. Jesus in the desert. Why is he in the desert? He's preparing for his trial. 
He's preparing for his life of ministry. It's a self-imposed desert trip to be tempted by Satan. And Satan shows up, and after 40 days of fasting, he says, turn the rocks into bread. And he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I think this is exposing us. We grumble when we don't have it. And then when God provides, we want to hoard it. We want to be hurried to keep things going. But all three of those sin patterns are our attempt to replace Jesus and run after the, out of the flesh, right? And I want to just draw our attention then. to I get to do it this week, the most legitimate time ever, to John chapter 6. Because I want, to, I want to talk about this passage about every single week. But this week, it fits. This week, it actually fits. The word man is even in there. I want to remind you, just realize, you don't have to read it, you can if you want. I'm going to paraphrase it. But Jesus has fed the 5,000. I mean, here was a group of people in a sort of type of desert. What was their desert? Rome occupies their home country. Uh, they've lost their national identity. They want a king. Also, they're hungry. And Jesus provides 5,000 people with fish and, and loaves of bread. And it, and it says in the book of John that he knew they wanted to make him king by force. And so he quietly leaves. And he walks across, this is where he walks across the Sea of Galilee. And later they come and find him. And it says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? It's a little grumbly, a little accusatory. Right? They're grumbling. Listen to the words of Jesus. Chapter 6, verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Wow. Right? You don't like me. You like the bread. Do you labor for the food that perishes? Okay, right there. You want to laugh. I mean, if I'm in that, if I'm just watching this like a fly on the wall, I'd be like, the whole reason they're chasing Jesus down is to avoid labor, right? I want a God that will just sit there and provide bread for me so I don't have to work. That's what it looks like. But Jesus is uncovering something. They're frenetic activity, their, 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 their energy being spent to find him and hunt him down was a type of labor. It was anxious. It was self-seeking. He says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And How do they respond? How do you respond? They looked at him and said, oh yeah, okay. What are the works we have to do? Right? What are the works that we have to do, to, or what actions do we have to do to be doing the works of God? In other words, how will I be righteous? What do I have to do to earn this bread I just saw you give? I want that. You're giving me a riddle. What do I have to do? And listen to Jesus' answer. This is the work, singular, of God, that you believe in Him whom he has sent. That you believe in Jesus. That you rest. That you accept him. What, is, what do they do? First of all, they argued about him saying, don't labor for this, labor for the food that endures. He says this, they still argue. What sign do you do to 
that we may see and believe you. They're, they're ready. You know what they're doing? They want more manna. They want more bread. Right? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it was written. He gave them bread from heaven. And this is the same mistake we saw in chapter 16 of Exodus that we're looking at this morning. They grumbled to Moses. They thought Moses was the one that would provide. Moses, you're in charge. And they looked at Jesus and they said, Moses provided the manna. What are you going to do? And listen to Jesus. Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you, present tense, the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So, do you thirst? Do you hunger? It's a rhetorical line of questioning. You do hunger. You do thirst. Are you being honest with that? Some of you raise your hand about grumbling. Are you being honest about the fact that you don't trust Jesus? Is he the bread that you're trusting in? I'm not suggesting that you're not Christians, by the way. Jesus is talking to people who would say he was a Christian. They believed in him, right? But what Jesus is saying in John 6 is that when you are persistently using religious ideas, religious things for your advantage, or whether you're running after other things completely like idols, you are running away from Jesus. And he's saying, you have to come to me. That is risky. And the reason that is risky is because you have to die. To come to Jesus, even as a believer, you've been a Christian for 45 years, you're celebrating your 45-year conversion birthday to this morning. It's another holiday some of you celebrate. And you're, you're, you just can't believe it how long you've been a Christian. This very morning, you need to go to Jesus. And you need to confess, I am prone to wander. I am prone to hoard. I am prone to hurry sickness. I know I grumble. All of these sin patterns are one thing. I run from you. I'm afraid of you. The gospel has once again grown very distant to me. Is that you? Because when you come to Jesus, you have to once again, you're not getting saved again, but once again, His blood is reminding you of the lengths He has gone to to bring you into His kingdom. And it's showing you once again that you are no longer an alien. You are now been brought close. You've now been brought close. He's infused His blood into you through the Lord's Supper. We even look at this. You think that sounds gross? That's what John 6 continues to say. You read it. You, you go meditate on it. I recommend it to everybody I meet with. Chew on John chapter 6. He says, you must eat of my, bread, my uh, body and drink of my blood. It is profound. In other words, whatever you find identity in apart from Jesus, repent. Have you come to him in this way lately? Have you repented lately? Brennan Manning in his book, um, Abba's child says this, when he started to understand the gospel, and he started to believe the implications, and he started to realize, Jesus really loves me because of his righteousness. Not because of anything I've ever done, but because of him alone. I am completely loved. I am completely saved. I am completely redeemed. Once and for all, he says, the chains fell off. I understood the gospel. And then in a very strange place, he says, and I needed less sleep. 
Now, I'm not suggesting you might need less sleep, but I love what he writes because he's basically saying, I was exhausted trying to do my own Christianity on my own. I was exhausted trying to do righteous things on my own. So whether you're running after God out of your own effort or you're running completely away from Him still in your own effort, you're exhausted. And He's inviting you this morning to come and take and eat that He is good. Jesus loves you. He's provided Himself for you. Bring everything to Him this morning and say, I want to walk with you. Do not tarry until you're better. Do not wait until you get it figured out. Come to Him this morning. Let's pray.